0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Our dramatic theatrical entrance. Okay, we might as well get started. Can we all look up to this blue sky painted in the center of the ceiling? And looking up directly at it, can we just point to where you consider the center to be? And can we just scream the name of the person that... Our earliest childhood memory of the person that made us feel horrible. Just scream that name. All right, cool. There we go. I'm glad we cleared the air. Can we just can we just start jumping up? No, this, I, I don't think this building's been looked at by a structural engineer in probably like 25, maybe 35 years. Uh, let's just we're gonna start a countdown. We're gonna start at a five. We're gonna say five five times. Five. five.
3: That was Baltimore-based electronic musician Dan Deacon, opening a concert at the Subterranean in Chicago in March of
2: 2014. This song's called the
3: Mountains. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're taking a trip to Baltimore to chat with some of its residents about the various ways they make a living there. We're hoping to learn a little about the ways that Baltimore shapes their work and the ways they're shaping Baltimore by working. For this episode, we spoke with Dan Deacon about making weird and wonderful music in a city full of creative people. He leads us through the practical details of the job, including his approach to merchandising and the way that he navigates luggage restrictions when he's on tour. Uh, Further, he tells us about the actual process of producing a song from his initial sketch to the final product. And he discusses the effort that goes into putting on a live show, explaining the origins of his penchant for audience participation. I will say here that though I'm not a live music guy, I've never not had fun at one of his shows, and I've never not participated. And, of course, he goes into his ongoing relationship with Baltimore itself. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Deacon gives us a tour of his apartment, showing off his home recording studio and giving us a peek at the board game he had set up when we visited. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus
4: what is your name and what do you do <laughs> uh my name is dan deacon and i'm a musician well what kind of music do you make uh i make electronic music and it's the kind of electronic music that People would dance to, but not in a dance club. And it is not the kind of electronic music that normally would get called uh, electronic dance music. Uh-huh. It's 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 definitely in like the middle of. I think everyone likes to think their music is in the middle of multiple things, but I don't know. Whenever I go to a festival, I'm if it's an electronic festival, I'm the indie act, and if it's like an indie rock festival, I'm the DJ. <laughs> so I'm somewhere in there.
3: How much of your time do you spend actually? making the music that goes under your name?
4: Nowadays, uh, not nearly as much as I used to. When it becomes a job, you all of a sudden have other jobs, and you become mm-hmm. like a manager of yeah. time. And if you have no uh, ability to do that, your job gets very hard very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I'd say a couple a couple of hours, but it used to be all day, every day, and I look back on that kind of like longingly, but at the same time I was doing that to get to a level of success. And it's, it's sort of this like, I don't know, I'm going to stop going down that road of being like, I wish I just, I'll go, <laughs> go away.
3: <laughs> well, so what are some of the actual like managerial or business tasks that consume your time now then? Well, yesterday
4: was sourcing Legos. Legos? Uh, Legos. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm trying to, getting all the equipment to not be, be destroyed by TSA or just travel in general uh, is a Like nightmare. the equipment you... The equipment I use. Because like, I use, know. like, everything looks like not an instrument. Um, <laughs> and even though they're all, like, mass-produced electronics, I guess some of them are, like, boutique-produced, but it's still bewildering to open up a suitcase that's just, like, tons and tons of wires, and, like, <laughs> they don't know what it is. So it's constantly getting ripped up. And I thought Legos would be the best way to, like, secure it so they could just snap right back on top and even if they didn't do it properly it would still a fix um there's a lot of like logistical planning that goes into being an electronic musician figuring (laughs) out like and i think that's been my entire career because when i first started i was taking the greyhound bus everywhere and my whole uh life had to revolve around the luggage restrictions of a greyhound bus which is two suitcases and a backpack Um, but if you make a bunch of bags out of clothes, they can't tell that they're bags when you get on the bus. (laughs) Uh, The airport's a little more strict about that, but it's kind of similar too, two checked bags. Uh, But now I travel with the crew, so we have a little bit more. So it's mainly just like meeting with the crew, figuring out what's working about the show, what isn't working about the show, how it can evolve. It's kind of like you know, a boulder just like smashing down a hill and sometimes like trees get stuck to it and you're like, oh, I like these trees. or like, (laughs) these trees are really screwing up the mids. Um, A lot of email. Email is a huge part of the job. Is that about like
3: planning out shows and touring and stuff like this? Exactly.
4: Getting schedules together, Mm -hmm. seeing who can do what shows and what can. I have a management team, which is great. Like that's really like returned probably 25% more music writing time back into my life.
3: Is there a business end that's not
4: you? There's a ton. There's a ton. Yeah. And it didn't used to be, and I'm a real micromanager, and I was so used to doing everything that it was hard to give up.
3: But now there's a lot. Like,
4: obviously, the manufacturing of the the records and the CDs and the figuring out who's going to host on Spotify or iTunes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I have no idea how to do that. Okay. Um, and I don't want to. <laughs> uh, things will have... Gone south for me if I'm Googling. Like, how do I got my new record on Spotify. <laughs> that's how I think I sound in my head. Um, our, our listeners can decide, but I, I don't think that is how you
2: sound.
3: <laughs> I was thought you were going to be like. There was no difference in. Uh, yeah, that was the, the same point. point. <laughs> what about merchandise? How how involved are you in that? I mean, I, I assume that that plays a significant role in profits and. Uh,
4: and it does, especially on the road. I like designing a lot of the shirts, and that's fun. Is that mostly what you sell? Shirts, shirts and pins and, and then the media itself. Yeah. Um, CDs or tapes or whatever are tapes still in tapes are in tapes are probably my highest profit margin. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't sell that many of them, but, uh, they're super cheap and even if you don't own a tape player, if you're like me, you uh, are addicted to buying something that's cheap because it seems like a deal. Mm. And like, oh, that's pretty cheap. That's the cheapest thing on the table. Uh, I, I don't have a car, but these are pretty good air car air fresheners. I should get these. Um, so I think tapes appeal to that group of people. Plus, like cars with tape decks are now affordable. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people are in these cars. No one has CDs anymore, and uh, tapes just such an elegant format. Yeah.
3: So you, when it comes to actually, like, producing this stuff, though, you're, you're designing the T-shirts, coming up with...
4: Sometimes. It, sometimes I'll work with a designer. Like, with the last record, uh, we worked with uh, visual artist Joanna Fields, who did um, the artwork. And then we started designing complementary merchandise to go around mm-hmm. the look of the artwork. Um, but I'd say just about every tour, I design one
3: or two shirts
4: it's just fun to do. Do you
3: have a favorite uh shirt that you've you've designed?
4: I had the can I cuss on
3: this show? Yeah, 100%.
4: Um I had had this shirt that said sassy as fuck uh-huh. and it was like <laughs> it was a purple shirt with like a magenta ink and it was in the curls font. I'm not sure <laughs> if you remember it, it was with curls font. And it had these like kissy lips, like kissy lips on them, like lipstick imprints. I don't know what you would call those. I call them kissy lips. That <laughs> obviously. that right? Yeah. This is what, it, this is when you get your masters in a uh, composition, you got to design kissy lips t-shirts like straight off the bat. That's my, uh, that's my little tip.
3: Do you actually enjoy the, the business side of it? I mean, it's... I do,
4: uh, I thought I, I wouldn't, but it is, it's fun. It's like, because it is completely it, like running a DIY venue was the same exact thing, but just on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And A DIY tour was the same thing. You're just running a a small business. Like, we live within the paradigm of capitalism. And even if I'm going and playing like these, you know, anarcho spaces, I still have to buy gas. And I remember like pretty early on, like walking around, playing a venue that like didn't have like a door person. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, just go around, pass a hat around for gas money. And I was like, "All right, that sounds like a great idea." And I was going around doing it. And I was like, "Do you have any money for gas? Do you have any money for gas?" And I was like, "I'm just out here like grassroots fundraising for Exxon. Like this is insane." Um, and started thinking about how it needed to have some sort of structure, or else the only people that were going to make money off of what I was doing were going to be, you know, alcohol companies and gasoline companies. Um. Anyway, that's a tangent. But I I do like to I I like the strategizing and thinking about like how things are going to fall and thinking of different ways to engage with fans. I mean, ultimately the goal is for the music to be heard by as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to the paradigm we live in, the only way to do that is if I can sustain living off of it. Mm -hmm. If I can't live off of it, I'm not going to be able to make as much music. Do you know what I mean? My time will have to go to something else. And I guess that's kind of why I moved to Baltimore because it was so much more affordable than mm. New York. When did you move here? 12 years ago, basically right out of college. Mm-hmm. And uh, really shaped how I thought about music moving here because from like a logistical standpoint, like you can be in New York and back that night. You can play DC and Richmond and be back. You can hit Boston that day. Mm-hmm. Same with Chicago. You can hit so many of the East Coast cities and it just seems very close to all of them. Mm-hmm. And it was a city that a lot of touring bands passed over. So when I was living here, I tried to book as many shows as possible to change that, to bring bring other bands in. Bring other bands in because it, you know, it is like a largely like a favor economy where it's like, oh, thanks for booking me. I can book you here now. Mm -hmm. And that worked out real well. Um, But yeah, so I can't imagine what it would have been like if I'd stayed in New York. I would have been working at least full time just to pay rent in a very tiny place where I couldn't have had shows and... Probably couldn't have recorded or have been loud at all hours of the day.
3: Uh-huh. Do you have a sense now, uh, since we were talking about the kind of economics of of making music, of how your income breaks down, like how much of it comes from touring, how much from album sales or Spotify sure. or whatever, and, and and how much from merchandise?
4: Merch is nice to have for cash on hand on the road for like mm-hmm. gas and stuff, but... Uh, I still think the bulk of it comes from actually playing the shows. Mm-hmm. This is the longest stretch I haven't done tour, touring. I'm trying to, like, learn what it means to be still. I haven't mm-hmm. been still in a long time. Um, but, yeah, touring is definitely the largest income, and then after that, records, and then after that, um, very. I guess sometimes, I do a lot of, like, non-Dan Deacon work. Mm-hmm. Um, I still write music many hours a day, but lots of times it's for, like, a film score or for a theater project or mm. some sort of non quote unquote Dan Deacon project. Something that's I mean? not, that I'm not going to
3: find on Spotify or Exactly.
4: Exactly. Um, until a rarities comp of music no one really wants to hear comes out and listen to it. I get like 35 cents from it. <laughs> um, uh, I would, I don't know why I just disparaged that work anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then, you know, I think the hardest part is figuring out what to say no to because your whole start of your career is just begging anybody to let you perform or to contribute music to something. And then it, it's like turning on a faucet, because the moment it's on, people are like, oh, you can do stuff? Uh, all right, well, uh, do you want to do every single thing? Some of them really suck. Some of them are going to be bad people. <laughs> um, and then you're like, oh, uh, yes, yes, I'll do it. And then like you break down the hours you put into it, and what seemed like a nice payday turns out to be like 1940s minimum wage. <laughs> But then you start thinking like, but I'm an artist and I should be doing this for the love. And then you're like, but you took this particular project for the money. You could have been doing what you loved for almost the same amount when you think about it. Um, So that's the hardest part. Again, and that just goes back to time management, knowing that like I shouldn't just take every single project I can get because if I'm never bored, I'm never going to just sit there and riff. Do you know what I mean? If I'm constantly – I try to think about it in terms of like – like cooking as much as possible. If I was like a chef and I'm like cooking all day, I'm not going to really come home and make myself an elaborate meal. Maybe I would. Maybe that's what chefs do. I don't know what chefs really do. I have no idea.
3: The indie generation kind of immediately before you had a lot of anxiety about selling out in mm-hmm. their work. Is that even a, a term that, that you think about these
4: days? Uh, I think more and more that term is different. And if you think about the way that people consume music, It's different. Also, I think a lot of that was really good PR in Mm -hmm. the 90s. Um, I think Generation (laughs) Exit was really good at playing the like. I think the closest we had was like Jordan Catalano and what was that show? My So Called Life. I think so. Just like the kind of like, oh, I'm just this like super handsome, privileged white male and like nothing's going right for me. Like to me, that's like the 90s successful bands. Mm -hmm. Being like, oh, everyone just wants to use all my songs and it's oh, I just don't want to let them. So I tell my publicist so they write a big feature about it in Rolling Stone magazine. (laughs) Um, That's how I kind of, like, viewed selling out. I don't know. It's also hard because once, you know, I I grew up with working-class parents who definitely, definitely would be, I think, uh, disappointed if I didn't take particular jobs, being like, what are you talking about? I would have worked years for that money in, like, actual physical labor. (sighs) So there's a privilege to not selling out. You already have to be in a position where you can look at that money and not care about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that more and more people think about and realize and be like, why wouldn't I do this? Because if I do this, I could do this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think I'd write a jingle for like Halliburton or Monsanto. Mm -hmm. And again, I do give so much money. So much of my income goes directly to oil companies. And I wish that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Just because of all the traveling? I mean. Just because of all the traveling. Um, I mean, I tried to get around it by getting that bus that ran on veggie oil, but it still needs to turn on at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, selling out is an issue, but there's this like uh, It's almost like an uncanny valley um, where you can be pretty unpopular for a while, but you'll, you'll have like diehard fans that love you. And then as you get more popular, it'll be great and people will be excited for you. And then you get to this like middle level popularity and people are like, oh, you're not, you're not famous, but you're also not, we know who you are. And then you're just, you're just this like hideous, disfigured (laughs) music, unless you get super popular and everyone's like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I love you. I've always loved you. (laughs) So there's that uh, realm you need to worry about.
3: You're listening to Meme Generator off Dan Deacon's album Gliss Riffer. After this brief break, he tells us about how he generates his own songs.
0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So what is a
3: typical music-making day like for you? I mean, you're not making music every day, right? Or do or you try to?
4: Uh, I try to. I, I'm definitely, like, groggy if I don't. Okay. It's got to be, like, the equivalent of, like, someone who likes to run. Mm-hmm. It's like they can't get their run in. It's like, oh. Like, I definitely, like, can tell by the end of the day, like, I didn't make any progress on anything, even if I had done a bunch, of, like, like, uh, as you can tell, like, I'll let the dishes pile up to the point where I'll get a little bucket to put them in, because that'll make it seem like I'm doing something about it. I actually it. thought that those dishes were done. No, those are dirty. Um, the trick worked. <laughs> even if I don't think, like, oh, I haven't written any music today, I can just tell when it piles up, and I haven't, mm. and I just have to. Yeah. And But then the, that's the hardest part, is getting back into it, yeah. is... The job is completely structureless. And I think that's, again, it all goes back to time management, which is funny because I'm a musician. That's all you do is place objects in time. And I guess those objects are not objects. They're sounds. But I can't do it on a macro sense. I can plot a tour very well. I think I can place rhythms and pulses in time well, but I just can't ever remember, like, grocery shopping. I have to get food in the refrigerator. It doesn't just appear. (laughs) And since I don't have, like you know, a regular schedule and my partner's a school teacher who wakes up at like five in the morning. I'm constantly like waking up super early in the morning, sometimes going immediately to the airport and then like quote unquote working till three in the morning. And then
3: when you say working here, you mean, I mean like traveling doing, doing and like, yeah. And, yeah. If your days are amorphous, uh, as they sound, is there a time when, when you're sort of optimally primed to, uh, that was a transformer. Uh, <laughs> Is there a time of the day that's best for you to make music? I mean, are you a guy who likes to put those sounds in time in the morning or or is is the evening best? I mean,
4: it's really just the large blocks when Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about what's to come. Mm -hmm. Like if I have an appointment, even if I wake up at, like I said, five and I don't go back to sleep and I stay up and I don't have anything until four, I'm still always thinking like, oh, I got something. So the nights work good for me because I can just work all night Mm -hmm. and I'm very good at pushing things back in the morning. Yeah. I think it's really just, like, if I have a complete day off, like, it'll just happen. We're, har- we're in your a- apartment now. Correct.
3: Uh, is this where you make music, or do you have a separate studio the, space?
4: The studio's behind that wall of paintings, and then this closet over here I turned into a complete dead vocal booth. Cool. So I run like a snake into there. And I've got a larger space across town, like two miles away, mm-hmm. that's for, like, drums and piano and loud, big things I can't bring up the stairs. Yeah. But really the hardest part is not letting little things get in the way. Like not email is a a mind killer. Like I really think getting a smartphone was the worst move I ever did in being a musician is because like while we've just been talking, my phone's vibrated like 15 times and I only get push notifications for like two apps. So either like a bunch of houses are going up for sale right now or someone's (laughs) like, why aren't you emailing me back? Um, And it's just hard to stay in the in the moment. Like I can understand why people go to like retreats to write mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but I don't have the time.
3: When you start working on a new track, what are the the first things that, that you have to start bringing together or, or, or working on?
4: Uh Well, it's a lot like just sketching in a sketchbook. I'm I'm often just writing just to write. I'm not writing with, like, if if I write like sitting down with a goal in mind, it's always like the worst. <laughs> <laughs> it just turns into like a ska song, even if I'm trying to write like <laughs> a horror movie soundtrack or something. That would be a rare guy. It's just a, the uh, Sky Music <laughs> you, can, uh, you can find my high school ska Band online. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's, it, it is. It's just like you're sketching, and then it'll get to a point where it'll be like, okay, that that was nice. Uh-huh. I'll save this, but uh, I don't really care. And then, if I choose to work on it again, or if I'm working on it in that session and it clicks, uh, I'll save it as an addition, like 001. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of when I know I'm going to go back to that and try to flush it out. And sometimes that, just, again, falls to the wayside. But I realize the whole process is just to keep my skills honed and to know the software and to trust my ears. But when it becomes a song, I think, is when I start thinking about where it will live. Mm. Will If I start thinking like, oh, I could play this live or, oh, this could be like on an album or I think this would work well for this particular project, or I should save this in case I get a project that needs something ethereal because I'm not really this ethereal dude. This could work where I'm writing for a context outside of what I do. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm.
4: And that's sort of when, when I think about where its final essence will go, that's when it completely changes. And if it's live, I'll start adding percussion in a lot of it and leaving room for me to put vocals on top of. If it's an album track, it can be a lot more free and can go anywhere mm. but if i can't think of a home for it it kind of just lives on my hard drive until i go back and like be like oh that was cool but i don't know what to do with it mm-hmm. kind of like again like a sketch yeah. if that makes any sense
3: yeah what's actually involved in that sketching process for you are you doing something specific in a specific program on a computer or are you noodling around with an actual instrument or
4: uh i'd say about half the time it's in the end of the computer and opening up Either two programs simultaneously or one of two. Uh, I mainly work in Ableton Live and I'll try to rewire this program Reason into it. I used to re- work exclusively in Reason, but um, now I work outside of Reason, which I really just like saying that. Uh,
2: <laughs> but sometimes it'll just be something
4: that will get stuck in my head while I'm doing the dishes and I'll just think about it and then I'll like sit down with a bass or You're like. coming attuned to yourself? Yeah, things? yeah. Um, it's rare I start with melody. I normally start with texture, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to just, like, hum textures.
3: What's the difference there for you, melody versus texture?
4: Well, I think a lot of electronic musicians are drawn to starting with texture because the whole reason we're working with electronics is to try to create new sounds Mm -hmm. or sounds that cannot be created acoustically. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that, it's nice to be able to just create a different palette for every single song. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like a lot of electronic music sounds like, each album sounds like a compilation more than it does a, a band. Like a band, is pretty I mean, they might have pedals and stuff, but the drum sound's gonna be pretty consistent throughout the whole record. The bass, the guitar, and the vocalist are all constants. Where with electronics, it's just all over the place. You can be sampling like a New Orleans brass band on one track, and then on the next one, it can just be pure sine waves, and that's the same band. Um, so, I, yeah, I tend to start with texture. Um, and since I'm not, like, virtuosic on any instrument, but I know my rig pretty well, it's. I think that's a nice place to start if I just want to, like, build something to riff on top of. Mm-hmm. and, But, yeah, I guess nine times out of ten, well, we'll go with five times out of ten. One time <laughs> out of two, <laughs> uh, it's, it's at the computer. Yeah. And then the rest of the time it's going to be anything, like playing with a little keyboard or, uh, singing into my phone, something like that.
3: As the track develops, as you go from 001 to to two, three, Mm -hmm. four, uh, do you bring in other musicians or are you still building it all yourself?
4: I tend to build it until it's ready to go. I still, I keep trying to break this mindset, but I still treat the studio largely like a camera. Mm. Um, and I would like to treat it like a, more of like a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that when I, with other people. When I bring in other people, it's pretty much like I know what I, I want you to do. And it's either written out on sheet music or there's like a macro structure set. And they can riff on top of that. Like there's a couple of musicians I work with a lot. Andrew Bernstein and Owen Gardner um, were just really heavily used on two projects. And I really love and trust their improvisation. But for the most part, it's pretty much like, yeah, please do exactly this. (laughs) Thank you so much. And being so close to Peabody makes it easy to find. What's Peabody? Peabody's like a really renowned uh, music program Mm -hmm. attached to John Hopkins.
3: Yeah. Do you draw a lot on Baltimore's music community? Oh, yeah.
4: It definitely is like a community. It's such a small city, but has such a large scene. Mm -hmm. And I really like it because it's so much easier to play a show without, this is going to sound negative, but it's not. It's easy to play a show without any consequences. Like I can go out and play a set of all new material and it's very unlikely that like a blogger is going to be there and like tear it apart before it's had any sort of essence. Do you know what I mean? Like whenever I'm in New York, I'm always just like, Oh my God, half these people were probably just being paid here and they hate me. (laughs) Probably probably not, but that's how my mind works.
3: At what point in, in, in writing a song do you, do you start thinking about
4: lyrics? The very end. I think most people who write songs probably start with like the lyrics or mm-hmm. the melody. Like, oh, maybe some chords. Maybe they get yeah. chords. I don't know what musicians do. Um, but for me, it's always kind of like, oh, yeah, I need to put lyrics over this. Uh. So I kind of start with just phonetic gibberish mm-hmm. and try to come up with a melody that I like. And then I try to adhere lyrics to that. Mm. I'm more concerned about the rhythm and thinking about the human voice as, like, a, just a constantly changing textured instrument, whereas, like, the piano is one timbre, obviously, you're never being like, oh, this piano's, and then the piano sounded like this, like, it always sounds exactly like a piano, while the human voice can sound completely different from one syllable to the next. Uh, I try to think about it more like that.
3: How do you know when a, when a song is finished, when it's ready to go, when it belongs on an album or, or, or whatever you can do with
4: it? Finishing is definitely the hardest part. It's like, you know, you can polish it forever and then, like, whittle it down into something it wasn't and be like, I need to build it back up, mm-hmm. um, which is why some tracks have, like, 400 versions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess you know when it's done when... I have a pretty maximalist approach to sound when I can't find any more space to Mm -hmm. put new sounds
3: your your music does have this often this very layered feel a lot of different kinds of sounds jangling up against one another
4: yeah it's pretty dense i'm trying to utilize space as a compositional element but i'm just not good at it so i'm probably what what do you mean by that like the space between sounds like (laughs) uh using silence as an element i was really into it in college but then i was just like my computer can do anything (laughs) my compact computer um (laughs) But I don't, I'm really bad at knowing when it's done. And that's why I really like, and it's hard being the only person in the room. And, uh, to me, it's the closest I'll have to like, you know, bringing something into the world and is it really a beautiful baby or do you just have to say it is cause it's a baby and like, I, I don't trust myself to be like, this is, this is good. I can present this and I should present this or I uh, Why have I been doing this for so long? I've been sitting in a windowless room all summer. I must be insane. And then you show it to somebody and there's no there's no reaction you can really get that, like, for me, like satisfies like what the process was. And ultimately, again, I'm doing it because I really like to do it and I don't know what else I would do. Um, I'd probably drive a coworker in a restaurant insane because I'd just be like, "Oh, sorry, <laughs>
3: I'm
4: going to speed that up. It'll sound way different when I." It's called a Verispeed technique. <laughs> um, but uh, writing a song is kind of like growing your own tomatoes, where like uh, you get the seeds and you like plant them, and the, you watch the vine grow, and you get that weird tomato metal thing and then it grows up and then you see the first little tomato and you're like oh there it is and then you just gotta wait till it's just ripe and you don't want to wait too too long you don't want it to rot but you want to oh it looks so good and then you cut it and then you have a friend over and you got your you got all the sandwich fixings out and you slice the tomato and they don't have any idea that you made it and you're taking a bite and you're like oh this is the best tomato and your friend just eats the sandwich and doesn't say a fucking thing about the tomato and then you're like oh i grew that tomato and they're like oh it was good it was a good tomato That's kind of what it feels like sometimes. But you still have the satisfaction of growing it yourself, and it's not like you want your friend to be like, what? Take it out of my body. I want to eat it again. It was so good. (laughs) I'm not saying like fanfare needs to happen, but it's so odd, especially when you're in uh, a community of so many creative people. It's not like they're like, this guy wrote an album. Stop the presses. Get the mayor. Everyone needs to know. So it's weird to spend so much time on something that has – such little consequence in anybody else's life
2: hmm.
4: other than they probably will enjoy it four or five times. If they enjoy it once, they'll enjoy it a couple more times while they're like doing the dishes or driving or fucking or something like music. Like I often envy a filmmaker or a playwright or an author where people are like, yeah, I sat down every night and read your book and it it was beautiful um, or, yeah, I went to the movies and I all I did was watch the movie because that's all you can do with the movies. Mm. Where with music, it's like, oh, I love your music. I listen to it while I'm jogging and thinking about how I hate my body. <laughs> um, so anyway, I mean, that's why. But it's also the privilege of being a musician is you can have your music in this documented form and play it live. Yeah. And that's, I think, what draws me to it the most.
2: On the bottom, can we slowly try to rotate clockwise around the space using the opening as a portal? And can we try to get the people on the top on this side to slowly work their way this way and the people on the top this side to slowly work their way that way? Like glue, like glue sliding down a sandpaper incline. We're moving as slow as humanly possible, but the people down here were slowly rotating in a circle going all the way around the space. Here in the front, we're going to weasel our way to the back. Here in the back, we're going to slowly morph our way to the front. And the top will try The top's not going to do it. I don't know if anybody can hear a word that I'm... Can anybody hear a word that I'm saying? Cool. You'd never know. This song's called Where I'm Sitting.
3: That's Deacon orchestrating one of his famous audience participation exercises back at that 2014 Subterranean Show. In a minute, we'll hear about the work that goes into a tour and how he started doing audience participation in the first place.
1: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.
3: famous for these, like, incredibly immersive, audience-engaging uh, live shows. See, I think the best
4: live shows take you out of the moment into somewhere else. And I really... And you, this can be true of recorded music, too, but my favorite live experiences are sort of this, like, transcendent... Is that the word? <laughs> Transcendental? Transcendent? Transcendent! Transcendent moments. I'm going to definitely redo that one. Uh, when I'm at a show or listening to music, I really like not knowing when I zoned out mm-hmm. and music that can help me zone out and think about, cause you're, it's obviously still going into my ears and into my brain and it's almost steering my thoughts. And if it's happening in such a way that it seems so natural that like when there's a change in the music, I come out of it. Uh, I love that. And I, I love that film. And then I start realizing I've been hearing it the whole time, and I remember where it was, but it's just sort of like has taken over me for a little bit. And I can, I don't know, think in this very psychedelic fashion, if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, but when when you are preparing and pulling off the show, I mean, presumably you can't zone off. I mean, I assume that there are well, a Well, the whole million. goal is of zoning
1: off. Okay. I, I
4: want to always be... I always want my mouth to be like two steps ahead of my brain, huh. and I want my hands to move without thinking. I want to be able to dive into my computer or uh, use my controllers without having to be like, hmm, what would be a good choice here? You just, you just want it to happen like the same way the sweat's rolling off my face. It just happens. And there's the...
3: Does a lot of prep go into making sure that that can happen, that you can lose yourself in it?
4: Yes, a tedious amount of prep. And prep is a much better word than practice because it is more like prep. And my show is, uh, I'm very glad it has the reputation that you described it because to me it has the reputation of pretty much constant failure of like the computer just stopping or the interface not working or like because it's, it's, we're definitely pushing the computer to the brink. And since we're, using the maximum amount of stuff, we don't have any redundancy. So a lot of acts have like a a whole secondary safety rig. Mm. So if the computer goes down, it triggers another computer, and then immediately pops up. That sounds great. Real smart. Super pro. I'm not fucking with that. (laughs) Why not? Uh, Because I'd have to bring twice as much stuff. And if I can bring twice as much stuff, I'd rather bring twice as much other stuff. Do you know what I mean? More stuff. More stuff. And then when I go to Europe, I can't do it because the – everything over there is smaller and the travel restrictions are different. <laughs> so like I can't, you know, the weight restrictions change. Like we are at like 49.9 pounds on every single one of our suitcases. And if they were to change it to 51 pounds, we'd be at 50 point, you know, like every, like we're putting gear in our pockets when we get on the plane. And when we're driving, it's a different story. Like when, if I do, I don't, I can't believe I said if, when I do uh, a road tour for the next record, I will most likely have a redundant system. It'll be great, but if I'm flying to a festival, I'm bringing basically everything that I can and leaving things I wish I could take home. So that's the the roll of the dice. Yeah. And luckily, as you can tell by how I don't shut up, uh, I like to talk. So, so
3: when when something fails, you just start chatting. Some,
4: that's when I and that's how my show came about was through dealing with failure. Mm-hmm. The first time I ever did any audience participation was because of a mistake. Um, I left something in my door. I was opening up for cat power at SUNY Purchase, mm-hmm. the college I went to. And I left this one adapter to hook my microphone up into the pitch shift pedal, which back then was like my bread and butter. And I set up this elaborate audience participation setup just by like rambling, and then I ran home. And got the adapter and got it. Like, while I mean, the audience was doing While anything. the audience was doing this thing, I don't think anyone even noticed I left the room. <laughs> and then I plugged it in and just started going. I thought, like, oh, thank God for that. Uh, but then I was in New York. Uh, I, was, I think I was still in college. I could have been, just moved to Baltimore. But I was playing this like basement show. And I've been playing New York a ton. And... You know, there's a million things to do in New York. Trying to get anybody, even your friends, to be like, "Come see me for the fifth time." Doing all the same songs. (laughs) Um, This was the first show I did that was packed, Mm -hmm. and it was just like one of those like random nights. It was probably like two people's birthdays, and they're like, "Let's go to the Apocalypse Lounge." And so it's a small basement place, like probably half the size of my kitchen, but people were into it. And then like the circuits blew. And I was like, no, because I knew if people went outside to smoke or just upstairs at the bar, the vibe was over, my set was done. So I just, luckily the light was still working. So I just like stood up on this box and I started like rambling, I make a circle, make a circle. And then started giving instruction, like very, because I was watching them like try to move the amps to get to the breaker box. And I was like, if I can just keep this going until the, power comes back on will be good. Nothing will have changed. And so I was just riffing on this like ideas for a dance contest. Like they had to dance like Odie or something. And and eventually the power came back on and the show, not only did it keep going, but it was like 10 times crazier because the circle created this potential energy where there could be people in it. And then it also shifted the focus where the audience was no longer looking at me or my direction. They were all looking towards the center of the circle. And then when it collapsed into chaos, that potential energy turned into this writhing kinetic audience. And ever since then, whenever something goes wrong, I kind of have to just riff on what to do. And if it works, I add it into the set, just like a song.
3: But do you use these strategies even if things aren't going wrong? I mean, it seems like it's central to, I, I do. to the kinds of shows you if, put on. People if, come for that in, in my experience.
4: If it adds to the show, I mean, cause sometimes they, they, these things suck and people are like, why are we doing this? <laughs> you know, I, I definitely have some like staples that I play just like songs.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, Staple games that you play with the audience, you mean? Or yeah. Uh, I pretty can much, you, can you give some examples of the kinds of audience participation that you, you do now?
4: Sure. Um, I think the the main thing I do every show, and I guess most performers do this, is gauging the audience. But I like to gauge the audience in a very direct way right off the bat by starting the show with giving them the choice to participate or not, because that's the choice. And by choosing to participate or not, you're participating. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I can figure out what their level of participation is going to be and where I can... So you Go with the crowd.
3: You've learned to read the room to some extent? Or?
4: Pretty much. Um, and I just try to do like a group participation, like even just asking people to raise one hand in the air. I can very quickly say like, that's basically me saying like, are you going to participate tonight or would you rather not? And then people either say yes or no. And then I can figure out if I try to want to pull it out of them or if they're ready and going for it. At this stage, people, like you said, the show has a reputation. and They go for that in mind, but... Uh, the show needs people to not participate. It needs people to to be spectators. Mm. And I like people switching back and forth, being like, I was participating, but now I'm just watching. Or I thought this guy was crazy, and now I <laughs> still know that he is, but I'm going to participate anyway. Um, and then it also goes on, uh, the venue as well plays a huge part. When we show up, I try to walk around the space and see if there's, like, multiple ways in or out. Um, see if we can go outside. If it's not a busy street, can we block traffic? Um, <laughs> Stuff like that.
3: But the music is still going.
4: The music is still going. I really, again, like I like the idea of... Uh,
3: assuming that the circuit board hasn't blown or
4: something. Assuming that, assuming that nothing's blown up, music's still going. And that's one of my favorite parts is when we all go outside and then you can sort of hear it like the throb of the bass through the wall and then you turn a corner and it's still going. And mm-hmm. to me, I think that's similar to like getting lost in the, the zone and being like, wow, this is still happening. That's crazy.
3: <laughs> sort of like being underwater. Kind of, yeah. What are you doing when you're uh, on stage? Are you, are you, like, is it just press play and it goes? Or, or are you actually, like, fiddling with knobs and dials and, and stuff? As, as, as there's,
4: a, there's, a, there's a lot of fiddling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely stuff that's preset. Like, yeah. I'm not a, a, a drummer, mm-hmm. and the computer is a great drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I keep the drums pretty much sequenced, and the songs have song form. They're set and ready to go. So I'm playing on top of tracks. But I, my goal is to do uh, everything that I possibly can. Do you know what I mean? Anything I can't do, I'm not going to not have in the song. Is that
3: because you want it to be a live experience?
4: Exactly. And, and I like to perform. Yeah. It's, it's much more fun having something to do than being up there being like... I'm not really the kind of like electronic musician that like stands on the table and pumps their fist. Like, <laughs> I like pumping my fist, but... Uh, Um, And early on, I had, like, again, my reaction to the, like, esoteric early 2000s electronic music was very negative. And I started thinking about what a performance meant to a non-musician. And I started thinking, well, the two oldest instruments are the human voice and Mm -hmm. percussion. And every single person can relate to that. Someone opens their mouth. and a sound comes out, everyone's nose and watching a hand move and the sound happens, it's very easy to just put the physicality to the sound and you can immediately even if you know nothing about music, you can be like, Okay, I see what's happening and unfolding here. Um, the smaller the instrument or the more hidden it is, such as electronics, the more esoteric it becomes and in my mind becomes boring. Watching someone go like this and that has no direct dials. it's just a complete abstract motion, not yeah. attached to any sound. I mean that could be for an event to happen five minutes from now. Mm. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. I I, do, I love music like that, and but if I want to see it live, I'd rather be in a seated theater. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be, like, standing with 400 people crammed in to just hear something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but for some reason, music has abandoned seated halls unless it's like Adele. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm on stage trying to – I do a lot of singing, but I don't really, like, sing as much. I'm more just using my voice as, like, a, a – signal to be processed is that if that makes sense is
3: that something that you think about when you're creating tracks in the first place as well i mean when there's i there's first kind of-
4: started now that like i'm playing with better pa systems i think about my voice as a voice and to carry lyrical content mm-hmm. but when i first started i was playing out of, like bass amps whatever speakers there were and i just wanted my voice to be something that like when i opened my mouth and a sound happened and it was a crazy abstract sound people still knew like oh that's he's triggering that with his voice yeah. and just so it had some sort of human connection. I wanted the electronic music to have a visible performative aspect other than just like pumping my fists.
3: So you're creating slightly different versions of songs. There's always that the
4: macro structure is always set, but the manipulation that's attached to my voice, the synth, and when the synth comes in are constantly changing.
3: Do you ever play a version of it or, or, or create a, a slightly different variant of it and you think, like,
4: fuck, I wish, I wish that had been the album version? Constantly,
3: especially when I'm playing
4: with a drummer um, because, you know, once the drummer learns the material, they'll start to internalize it and mm-hmm. play it with their own voicing. And I just, especially this one drummer I work with, Jeremy Hyman, uh, about a year into touring, we were just like, wow, I really wish we'd uh, written all these songs now rather than (laughs) two years
3: ago what kind of synthesizer do you actually have what 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 is the equipment that you have up there sure
4: uh when i'm live again it's a lot of uh using the computer and i'm running ableton live Mm -hmm. when i'm running and i use ableton live to also control the lights Mm -hmm. through some custom software that patrick built uh i guess the synth is it's it's a poorly named synth but it's just called analog they really should not have called it that because it makes it very hard to Uh, differentiate from an actual analog synthesizer. Um, And I use that as a monophonic synth, and I control it with a series of Fader Fox MIDI controllers. Um, But in the studio, I mainly use, I guess, for the newer work. For the last record, we went down to Moog in Asheville, and Moog is a synthesizer manufacturer. And I think it was the first record to ever track the Sub-37 synthesizer because it wasn't out yet and they just let us have free reign of the studio and all their synths. That was the bullshit police alarm going off there. Um, (laughs) but it's actually true. Um, but now I'm tracking mostly with the ARP 2600 and, uh, slowly getting into the realm of modular synthesis. And what's, what's that difference there? Modular synthesis is a, or modular synths rather. Um, imagine a keyboard Mm. as one instrument, uh, or a modular synth is each, individual component can be taken out, moved around, and um, you have to physically patch them with cables, kind of like imagine an old
3: telephone cables. What do you do after a show? It's, it's 10.30, 11, whenever the audience is left. I would love if the audience left at 10.30. That would be amazing. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it's midnight, 1, the audience is left.
4: Uh, you tend to wrap around 12.30 or 1. I mean, it depends on the city. Yeah. But uh, most times it's pretty late. It's a pretty long loadout, and packing everything up. Mm-hmm. So really, just chill with the crew, mm-hmm. and we.
3: How large is your crew?
4: Uh, right now, it's four of us: me and my front of house engineer, Al Schatz, uh, who's really like brought the show into like version three Like it's much. I like, wish I had started working with him in I often look back on... like. A, 2009 I went from like going from a just complete solo on the floor to like a 15-piece band and I really liked it but it was a just a logistical nightmare I had no idea how to do it we didn't have a sound engineer nothing was mixed we didn't have monitors we weren't playing to a click everything was free and it was just chaos and I kind of think now I could go back to doing that with Al and I never had that confidence before Mm -hmm. Then I have a lighting designer Patrick McMinn who I've been working with since 2012, around the same time as Al, who's also completely revamped the show. Uh, He's a real programming genius, so he builds a lot of custom software for me, both for lighting and sound. And then uh, my tour manager, Chester Guazdo, who actually lives right upstairs. We've been working together since since Bromps, which came out in 2009. So I guess since since 2008, mm-hmm. in very, various capacities. Sometimes he drives the bus, sometimes he produces the records, and currently he's
3: the tour manager. Sometimes he plays bass.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so you, after the show, you're hanging out with all these guys? Or just trying to go to bed. Or just trying to go to bed. You have a hotel usually near the venue? or, or? If we're staying in a hotel, uh, hopefully it's near the venue. Sometimes we still crash
4: with people, mm-hmm. especially if they're friends. Yeah. It's it's been a while since we've done the like we need a place. Um, I do love that style, but when I'm on, again when I'm on a road tour, I have my bus, so we stay on the bus because okay. it's just
3: how big. What kind of bus?
4: It's a school bus that we gutted okay. and converted into an RV, and uh, I mean it's not really an RV, but that's what it is on the insurance, so it's an RV. <laughs> um, and it's got nine bunks, so we sleep on that. It's got a little mm-hmm. kitchen. I mean, then we then that's when we stay quote unquote stay with people because we need sure power to like plug it in if we want to charge our phones at night mm-hmm. and it's always nice to go to the bathroom indoors.
3: When you're when you're hanging out with the crew after the show or, or just generally in that time after the show, it, do you ever interact with people who have come to see the show or, oh, yeah. or is that? I try to always go to the merch table before we pack up, because mm-hmm.
4: um, again we we tend to go until the venue is about to end. So there's always like 30 minutes of uh, trying to go out and say hi and thank you and pictures and stuff like that.
3: Yeah. Can we just talk a little bit more about Baltimore and how that has shaped your trajectory? You moved Mm -hmm. here uh, near the start of your your, your career after college. Um, How has being in this community shaped the kind of music that you've made?
4: Uh, I certainly got more interested in making more like sort of wild music here. When uh, I first moved here, we were living in this warehouse called the Copycat. And our unit was called Wham City, and we'd have shows. The shows were, were like, you know, the art school is like right over there. And uh, I guess you weren't supposed to flyer. Like the building, we weren't allowed to have shows, but we'd, I didn't know. And I would just flyer like crazy, and the shows were huge um, very quickly. And that was bewildering. Um, and people just wanted to go crazy. And the audiences were just like, I remember when I would tour, like my goal was to try to get like the 15 people who were there to hopefully dance by the end. And so I remember playing a show early on in Baltimore and I, the moment I started, people were dancing and I was like, my whole show is ruined. (laughs) I don't don't know what to do. They're already doing it. I don't have anything to do. Oh, what am I going to do? Um, So then I started writing music with more and more drumming, um, more and more of a pulse. And since there's no stage, I just started thinking, well, no one's going to see me anyway. I'll just do whatever the hell I want and the audience will go crazy. Mm. And that wasn't the case in other cities uh, because I'd have to go back to performing and being like, no, no, seriously, you might like this if you uh, give it a try. (laughs) Um, But Baltimore definitely like, changed the way i thought about one living and two it's just such a very i don't know it's a very unique city over uh, the course
3: of the last decade or so uh, a lot of bands have ended mm-hmm. up calling it their home yeah, uh, yeah i think uh beach house is is based here mm-hmm. uh future islands and, and others bands with a whole range of sounds and styles yeah yeah does that musical diversity of this relatively small scene uh inflect your work at totally all? Uh, I used to book these round-robin tours.
4: Uh, It's been a long time. But in 2008, we did a tour with, like, 60 people. And Beach House and Future Islands and myself, and then, like, also noise bands and performance artists. And you could very vividly hear the difference in everyone's music after that tour. Mm -hmm. Like, being on tour with such a wide array of music, um, I feel like definitely, like, changed the way that the scene was working it like any, any community can be kind of cliquish and this was still this was not by any means like bringing the whole city together it was more just like these you know it was rare you'd see like a, a noise band opening up for beach house and then that happened every night for two weeks and then <laughs> it just sort of started to change And that's what i like about baltimore is it's kind of like this like tide pool of like there's a lot of people coming in there's like definitely like a transient community of musicians and artists and people who want to live here or come here to work on a project or who grew up here and then moved away and live in like New York or Los Angeles now and then come back for a little while and then there's a lot of people who are very content on just living a lifestyle based in Baltimore and then there's people who like to live here because they can also live here and travel mm-hmm. and I feel like that's I don't know I really I really like it
2: uh,
3: Part of what's made it it seems like a sort of fertile ground for artists and musicians is that it's cheap to live here, but that's also a consequence of some of the economic disparities Mm -hmm. that, that I think are pretty central to, to the city's existence right now. It's
4: also, I think, largely just the, the city used to be 1.5 million people and now it's Mm 600,000. So there's an insane amount of space and it's also Mm -hmm. massively, it's certainly like overly policed and, some neighborhoods and then massively under in other neighborhoods. So for a while it was very easy to have shows because the cops just didn't give a shit. Mm. And yeah, it's a very, it's definitely an insanely segregated city. It's largely an apartheid. And I'd say since probably 2014, a lot of the white artist community that was like either willfully ignorant or just ignorant in general has started to realize that. And uh, I think a, a lot through the work of, uh, local performer promoter Abdul Ali. I feel like the city's like simultaneously twice as big and half the size, and largely to this this venue called the Crown. I feel like the Crown has really changed the way that Baltimore music and nightlife has occurred. Like the club music scene has very much become pivotal into like what it used to be very separate. Like the the noise music community and then like the weirdo rock music and the rock music and the club music and everything was separate. And now at The Crown, I feel like it's very much like all those shows happen constantly and people just go to see what's happening and that I feel like didn't used to happen before.
3: How do you reconcile the kind of pleasure that you take in your own work, the delight, I assume, in what you're doing with the kind of pain that the city, uh, I suspect, feels in so many ways?
4: Uh, I don't know. I I think every city is that. I feel like it's amplified in Baltimore, Um, especially from like an outside perspective. I feel like people who don't live in Baltimore look at Baltimore as like, oh, Baltimore, if only we could help. Um, And I try very much to not have like a white savior complex where I'm like, I'm going to bring my joyous music and I'm going to use that and that's going to save the city. Um, I think living here and being a part of the community and trying to be as part of as many communities as possible within the city. The best thing that anyone can do in Baltimore is just to be a part of it and contribute to it and to not see it as it's a lot of people from outside the city, see the city for its blight. And I feel like people who live within the city do the opposite and see the city for what defines it as in my mind, the most beautiful place to live. And, You can't ignore uh, the problems at all. I mean, you can choose to, but that would be, you know, of detriment to both you and the city. So I don't know. I just try to get involved as many things as possible and to realize when my voice is appropriate and when I should listen and when I should try to organize something and when I should be a part of someone else's organization or a a tool to help. And I think it's going to be a growing role. I mean, there's, there's a lot of like escapism within electronic music and within the arts in general. So much of it now is like making something flashy on the internet so it can be noticed and you hope that it can lead to something larger. But I feel like every city is built off of the oppression of someone else. And, you know, all the instruments that I use and make are, you know, I'm sure the miners who got the metal sacrificed a bit more than I did. And obviously, and the people who work in the factories, even like the microphones you're holding right now, or obviously every material in them was slave made. And I think as people start becoming more and more aware of like the effects of globalism on both like how their electronics and how their like the comforts of their lives come about, and then also localize it in the same sense thinking about, well, if this club exists, what do the neighbors actually think about it? And uh, I think, you know, that conversation happens a lot in Baltimore, especially in the wake of the uh, Ghost Ship Fire in Oakland that had a huge reaction here in Baltimore. The fire department came down very hard on many, many spaces, and a lot of people got evicted and lost their homes and lost their space, which is the source of their livelihood. And the mayor put together this uh, artist task force on – trying to create safe spaces and I was appointed to the task force and just trying to, it does constantly make me think about like, and cause people go to these meetings being like, I want there to be, there's no reason that artists should have preferential housing. Like if there's going to be an artist community where artists can live cheap, there should be a nursing community where nurses can live cheap or a teachers community where teachers can live cheap. So it's just trying to find a way that like your city is whatever you you let it to be in essence like, and other people are going to try to, it's, you know, there's definitely like a thousand forces that would love to see Baltimore just crumble and go into the ether. So it could become just like a place of furthered exploitation. But then you start finding people who generally want to make it a beautiful place. And I I don't think there's anything wrong in being an entertainer because if at the end of the day, people want to forget about their problems or to process their problems through something joyous, I think that's ultimately, what my role in this is.
3: Thank you so much
2: for oh,
4: taking no the problem. time to
3: talk to us today. Anytime. It's a pleasure.
2: Do you all mind just... you guys mind just raising both your hands in the air as high as they can go? Do you mind just very gently, if you'd like, just holding the hand of the person next to you? If you don't want to do this, that's perfectly fine, of course. Can we just close our eyes? Our eyes are closed, and can we focus as hard as we can? Focus as hard as we can on the image of the face of the person who means the most to us in our life. Think about them looking at you. Think about them smiling. Think about all the joy that you've brought to their life and all the joy that they've brought to your life. Maybe this person is no longer in your life or no longer amongst the living. Maybe this is someone very new to you, or someone you've known since the moment you've been alive. Think about how different your life would be without this person, and how different their life would be without yours. And now if we could just slightly and gently squeeze the hand of the person whose hands we're holding, feel that grip, that presence, and now can we just let loose our hands, let our arms down and relax, and just enjoy the rest of the night.
3: That's Dan Deacon closing out his 2014 Subterranean Show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper, who also recorded that Subterranean Show in 2014. Our executive producer is Steve Liktai. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers.